It says it's preparing to live stream the meeting. When I told my team that I wanted to do this, uh, they were looking at me like, well, what kind of preparation have you done? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> we'll just see what happens. It'll, it'll be fine. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Well, I, if nothing else, we'll have a fun conversation that will then later upload manually to YouTube and strip the audio off of. <laughs> so welcome to Connect This. We're aiming for sort of serious conversations. And, and so I wrote down a little intro because I wanted to make sure I covered a couple of bases of, of what we're trying to do here. And the idea in my mind is real conversations about proving internet access, improving, um, and a panel with people that have different specialties talking about current issues in broadband, um, ideally some fun. And, and from my point of view, I always hope for some good arguments. So we'll see if we can root around and find those. Um, I kind of feel like we're not going to crack. I'm not going to trash the clean tag just for the sake of doing it, but um, it might happen. <laughs> so for viewers to have the right expectations, uh, this is episode zero. We're, we're experimenting. We're going to learn some lessons. And then in coming weeks, we're going to, um, as we iterate the show, we'll be adding the ability to do live comments and, and watching on the live streaming. Uh, but today we have three panelists um, as well as me, uh, Christopher Mitchell. Um, and the, the first I wanted to start with is a guy who's been pushing me to do this for a while, Travis Carter of US Internet. Travis, you just want to introduce yourself quickly, um, who you are and why you're in an aluminum can. Uh, yeah, hi, thanks, Chris. Thanks, everyone else. Um, Travis Carter, I'm the CEO of US Internet. We're a fiber provider serving, I like to say the Twin Cities, but predominantly Minneapolis here. Um, we're in our 12th season. And the reason I am down stuck in Iowa is Minneapolis decided to get tremendously cold and snow a few weeks early. So I was in Indiana and said, well, instead of going back and freezing, why don't we hang out in Iowa? And I'm not sure if this was the best choice, to be honest with you, but here we are <laughs> sitting. The Wi-Fi is terrible. My LTE cellular thing, I might run out of bandwidth at any time, at any moment and drop off. It's been ridiculous. So tomorrow morning, we're uh, packing up and heading north. Excellent. Well, Travis, I think people who have followed my work have seen you do various interviews with us. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really glad you can, you can join us from the road. Um, I want to introduce Kat Blake, who I worked with at Next Century Cities and who's now with, uh, at CTC, a company that many people know um, because of Joanne Hovis's work around the country with the Coalition for Local Internet Choice as well. Um, and the thing about you, Kat, that I thought would be useful noting is that, is that you made a really bad decision to re-sign your lease in D.C. Um, when you can work from anywhere doing the work that you're doing. So <laughs> here you are stuck in D.C. as we talk about how bad the weather is. I'm going to make fun of you for being in DC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a bold choice. Um, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm really excited to be on this inaugural experimental episode. Um, I am DC based, but after my 70 degree hike on Saturday, I'm not feeling too bad about it. So thanks for having me. <laughs> boo, boo. <laughs> And, and then we also have Carl Bodie, the longtime tech writer uh, who's frequently found at TechDirt and Vice's motherboard. Uh, Carl, I can't believe it's been a year since we were on a show when uh, we did my podcast last year. I was just looking it up to remember how to pronounce your last name. And I was like, it's a year ago. It seems like it was yesterday. It's, just, it's been a strange one, isn't it? Uh, it's Bodie. Bodie. Yep. Yeah. No, I think I got it right. So 
Um, so this is, I mean, you guys are the kind of panel that I want to have on every show, uh, people with a lot of experience um, doing different things and at least that much personality as well. And so I know that I can get that from, from each of you. And for people in the audience, tell me what you think. Uh, you can send me a note at broadband at uh, We're going to talk about a couple of different topics and aim for about 45 minutes or so. And uh, we're going to start with, I was going to throw this to Travis um, to start with. And this is the Project Overcome from US Ignite, which is a group that really focuses on driving uh, high bandwidth applications and, and really helping to make sure we're rolling out high quality networks around the nation. They've done this interesting program in which they're asking for applications from communities to show how they can rapidly connect a lot of new people, um, whatever technology they want to use but also whatever you know, approach they're gonna use in terms of organizing themselves. And so I'm sort of curious you know, like how you react to this program and, um, and implicitly, what would you do if uh, you had a, someone writing you a check just to do something interesting to get a lot of people online? Well, it's a timely question, isn't it, Chris, since our last dinner slash lunch we had together where we had access some cash and we tried to come up with a project. And I think what's interesting about that statement is the rapidly part of it, is how do you rapidly deploy a bandwidth in any significant capacity without having some of the fundamental pieces? So do we have, is it, is it gonna be a wired connection? Is it gonna be wireless? Do we have access to egress or internet that we can disseminate to that area? Do we have access to hardware? Let's not, uh, take, um, you know, at this, this moment in time, this stuff just doesn't pop out of the air. You have to have it. And some of the lead times on some of this equipment is six months or longer. Then do you have enough client devices? So it's, it's, a, it's a challenging exercise to do anything rapidly. Then if you overlay it in any major city, then you, then you take into consideration the incumbent elements of trying to get something approved. And again, let's say that people are out of their offices or you're a new entrance into the market. They've never heard of you before. So you have to go through some sort of bonding exercise. So I would, I would just say there's two questions I have to this article is what do they consider rapid? And B, um, what type of bandwidth do we consider appropriate? or you know, acceptable. As I sit out here in the middle of an RV park with limited capacity, it's terrible to be honest with you. So we've got to solve those two type of questions. If rapid is a year, okay, that's one way. And if bandwidth is 10 megabit, well then th those are two relatively easy things to do. If you're gonna lower the timeline or increase the requirement of capacity, well, you've, you've made the problem exponentially more difficult. Kat, let me ask you, you know, as someone who's worked with a lot of communities and try to get a sense of how they're organizing, you know, does this move the needle? Um, definitely. I think any program that offers capacity um, is moving the needle because both uh, staff capacity and money capacity, budget capacity, I think is something that all communities need right now. And that's often where push really comes to shove. Um, when I was brainstorming around, you know, what I might dream up in response to this. I think I went in a little bit of a different direction. Um, I was really thinking about support for um, community-based solutions, maybe even for fixed wireless access to public housing and other dense communities. Um, and the reason why I was thinking about that is because I think one of the many things um, our current 
situation has exposed is that there are so many flaws in um, adoption of, you know, a lot of low cost programs that exist um, that we uh, to some degree knew about before, but are really understanding now um, that sometimes even when the cost of a low cost program is covered, that doesn't result in high adoption. And that can be for a whole variety of factors, including, you know, credit check and eligibility requirements. And so when I'm thinking of how we can overcome some of those, you know, big barriers to getting people online, I think community-based solutions, um, you know, I'm thinking long lines of NYC mesh where, you know, you're being, um, things are being deployed by your neighbors. Um, it's pay what you can um, kind of option. I think that's not really, I think that's a solution to a problem that we're not thinking as much as we should be um, about right now. Carl, how much do you hate this? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, 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 I like to speak closely with what Kat's saying. You know, I don't, I don't, there's no silver bullet for any of this stuff. There's, there's a bunch of lo very highly localized niche solutions that are going to be required after you push fiber to as many and as far as you can in all these areas, which we're not doing. And like she said, a million dollars goes a long way in getting all these discordant groups actually working together into one wheelhouse where they can discuss and debate. And, you know, I'm assuming I can't use the million dollars to buy off politicians to get them to stop making broadband a partisan issue, right? That's off the table. We'll, we'll, uh, be, we'll be talking about that next, but uh, that that would buy you a, a state legislature, I think. I mean, yeah, a million is yeah. still a lot in a state legislature. <laughs> I think it would go a long way. I, I had a question for you. I forgot. What happened to, wasn't sewer broadband? Do you remember all the articles maybe 10 years ago? There was the, the robots that would deploy fiber through all the yeah, sewers. Yeah, someone just, someone just actually pinged me on that. Um, I mean, like someone from the company who was saying, let me tell you about how great this can be. And um, and I'm, Travis, I'd love to get your sense of it. Um, the thing that I thought held it back was the sense that like, if something goes wrong, well, then you need a robot to go in and try to figure out how to fix it. Cause your, your cut or your problem is inside a sewer line or, or even a clean water line, but like, it's mm. not accessible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think over the years we've tried to figure out multiple solutions of anything that goes into a home. Um, maintaining a sewer-based platform would be very challenging. Um, you know, I, I, there's really nothing wrong in, in the most effective way is directional drilling in the public right-of-way or hanging fiber on the utility poles if you have access to it. It's just doing it has always been our biggest challenge as we've talked about this for the last, what, 10 years, Chris? Yeah, no, Travis had just had me um, out to do um, a once in a season or twice in a season event where um, you you were um, pulling uh, 3,500 connection. How, how was the fiber count of that cable? Yeah, 3,456 fibers. So I actually wanted to bring Chris out and actually show him the, the what it takes to actually deploy it. And um, I think it was pretty eye-opening to actually see the amount of labor and the cost and the time and the effort. And that's to serve, you know, a relatively small area of, of a major metropolitan market. But if you take that as just a small sample and then let's multiply that out towards, you know, what we're trying to accomplish, because at the end of the day, you know, if we can get fiber deep into the neighborhoods and deep into these buildings, then that's the solution. Yeah, I just, I imagine, you know, looking at watching your guys splicing all of those cables over to the local networks, you can't do that inside the, the sewer pipe, right? I mean, and, yeah, and, boy. and there's so many things that go wrong that like you just can't anticipate. I, I just feel like 
inside the sewers seems like a, the someone who doesn't have a lot of practical experience making a joke. Most um, that I assume you're in the field, guys would just love to to joke about that. Well, imagine turning off somebody's uh, water or electricity, but then telling them, "No, we got to turn your sewer off for a couple of days while we fix this fiber cable." Not sure that's real practical, and I don't know who I could ever get to work on that. You know, the, some if, sometimes when we bury the fiber too deep, like four feet down or six feet down, my guys complain about it. Imagine telling them going into a two and a half foot sewer main that's gushing at full speed because Susie isn't getting her internet. I'm not sure they'd be too excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I view this as a great opportunity. I mean, I, I look back at the work that you and I did, Kat, and, um, and I feel like one of the greatest hurdles that we have is having these conversations at the local level. And what I love about this U.S. Ignite approach is that it, it rewards communities for having these conversations to start thinking about how they can deploy these solutions. Well, Chris, can I ask a question as a group? Maybe this is one of the things for episode zero. Yeah, sure. I just we... want to hear. Hold on. Let me just ask yep. Kat to answer that quick. And then. Oh, you, sorry, you, sorry, you, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Chris. What was your question? Well, just if, if that's what you're, you see, if you would agree that that's sort of the main hurdle, it's not money necessarily. It's local initiative, local like planning, local folks actually getting together and doing something. Um, I think that's, I think that's true. I think it can be difficult to, at the local level, coordinate a specific response that results in action items that can turn into a plan. I think um, often it's, uh, it's relatively easy to get local officials and stakeholders in a room agreeing about broadband. I think um, finding the time and the resources and the data in the community to turn that into something really specific that's going to solve an identified need um, is the challenge. And so to the extent that this could help fund some of those conversations and that action planning, um, I think, um, yeah, that's a huge step in the right direction. Travis, what's your question for us? What do we consider as a group an acceptable benchmark for bandwidth to bring to people? That's a, I mean, I feel like it's a really good question. And I'll say, I feel like I'm low compared to other people. Um, you know, I would guess Kat and Carl may come in above me, but I, I feel like um, you know, a connection that's like 50-10, which is what Canada is targeting right now, to me seems reasonable as a kind of minimum that we should be getting out to folks. Um, and I'm not saying that you can do everything you need to. I feel like there is a trade-off to the higher you start to go, um, the more challenging and costly it is. And so I feel like I would be comfortable at like 50-10 um, with no data cap, um, you know, for a, a basic service in the year 2020. I'd be okay with 50, 10. I, th I think uh, this, I, I'm seeing the movement towards like 125 seems to be where all the consumer groups want to aim at right now. Um, and especially no caps. People tend to forget the, the capped part of it. It's fine if you have all that speed, but if your uh, ISP has no competition and is locking you down at whatever, you know, 15, $15 for 50 additional gigabyte, gigabits per month or whatever, it's, 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 it quickly loses its steam. So I would go, I, I personally aim for 100 slash 25, somewhere around there, I think. Kat, you want to go higher? <laughs> um, I think for residential access today, I mean, 5010 feels appropriate to me. Um, I think, you know, as we all know, where it gets really sticky is um, 
you know, if you're setting that benchmark to fund new technology, if that technology um, that's providing 5010 is going to be able to provide whatever that benchmark is in 10 years. Um, but if I could snap my fingers and give every household in America today 5010, I would certainly be happy with that for 2020. Yeah, that's consider how many people are on sluggish DSL lines. I mean, there really are still a lot of people out there, like at three three megabits or so, just just the saddest. And the upload speed on those lines is just abysmal. You can't do anything on them. They're, it's not broadband, and yeah, I'm with agree. Yeah, I you know I, I do I think Kat, you you make all the appropriate nuances. Um, and the one thing I would add is that also I do feel like I'm thinking of of in my mind, like the speed as delivered when it comes to funding technology. I mean, what I worry about is that we'll have this uh, next, let's assume for a second that next week, Joe Biden becomes president. Um, we have an FCC that once again, cares about broadband access for um, for lowly people such as ourselves and even people much less fortunate. They, they, they increase the speed, the minimum definition of broadband. And then in four months, another and Republican FCC comes in and, and says, we're just going to do whatever I, you know, I hate phrasing it like that because we know that the Democrats mostly do what the big cable and telephone companies want to do. But like when the Republican administration comes in and then they go even more so, and they refuse to even touch the speed definition, then we're stuck for eight years at a speed definition. And people are like, well, Chris thought it was okay in 2020. Yeah. And <laughs> so that's comes in and 4k game streaming arrives and it quickly becomes irrelevant. Yeah. 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 So let's move on to the the, ne the next topic, which is um, this this continuing trend, which I feel like cat um, I'm sure is is heartwarming that um, we're continuing to see more states limiting access to broadband subsidies to municipal networks, so that only folks like Travis um, can get access. Although Travis doesn't even um, <laughs> hasn't even applied yeah. to those programs, so <laughs> we we don't apply. Yeah, yeah, we don't get access to it. Yeah. So, I mean, really it's for the big cable, mostly the big telephone companies, but sometimes the cable companies like in New York and Massachusetts. Um, but, but what are your thoughts about this? I mean, we're seeing now Michigan has, in, has set up a, a broadband subsidy program and Virginia, um, a state that you're familiar with, um, they have abandoned any hope of getting rid of existing barriers to municipal networks for this year, it looks like. Um, yeah, certainly heartwarming. I think the war on munis is one of the only constants in my life right now. Um, but I, I think it's, uh, it's always disappointing to see, but especially now as we're all really facing the reality of what it means to be left without access. Um, and that even, you know, seeing what that means for families across the country um, isn't resulting in politicians moving the needle on some of the nuances here. Um, something that stood out to me about um, the, the new Michigan legislation is that uh, I wasn't familiar with this um, until about a week ago, but that a project can't, I'm sorry, a municipality can't even use that funding to build and own its own infrastructure to then lease out. Um, and to me, that's really the smoking gun there where there's a huge gulf between you know policy that has the intention of creating an environment for private sector competition and policy that is designed to protect monopolies um, and i think when we are you know preventing local governments from using public money to build publicly owned infrastructure that can be leveraged to 
um, incentivize a more competitive marketplace, um, that's when we've really, really gone wrong. Yeah, Carl, I don't know polling, how you're going to add on to that. Polling, especially when the polling consistently shows that the public wants this stuff, you know, and it's a bipartisan support. It's not even, it's not partisan. It drives me crazy to see these things broken down in these state houses as a partisan issue. And it's, it's simply not. The public, it's like net neutrality. The public liked it. The public wants a little uh, accountability for these giant companies. The public wants to be able to decide for themselves what their best solutions are. And, and yet we get this constant news reports that frame this stuff as if it's a perfectly symmetrical partisan debate. And it's, it's just not, I find that incredibly frustrating. Yeah. And I, sorry, go ahead. No, you go finish up. I was under the impression that, I mean, it seemed like five, 10 years ago, Google fiber kind of highlighted some of this stuff. You know, the attention Google fiber was the free press they were getting in all the, in all the newspapers was highlighting these state bans, which when I talk to people, they still don't really even understand they exist. And when you sit down and explain it to them, the vast majority of people think they're stupid and counterproductive. So the well, fact we're still doing this stuff and still stuck in this gamesmanship where they're trying to, you know, keep them in place or, you know, carve out little caveats for the monopolies, it just drives me crazy to see it because it's so counterproductive. I don't, I don't want to be too rude, but seizing on stupid and counterproductive, I'll note that, Carl, you've written about some of the folks that have sponsored these bills. And um, and it's really amazing how little they know about any of this stuff. No. Um, you know, Delegate Byron in Virginia, um, Representative Hoytenga in Michigan, uh, many of the people we've come across, um, men in Michigan, um, men in, um, I don't remember their names anymore, in um, Missouri, um, you know, a lot of these places, they don't have any sense what they're talking about. And in the case of, of Delegate Byron leading this fight in Michigan, I'm sorry, in Virginia, she literally just like at a press conference couldn't answer the question and just asked the lobbyist to answer the questions for her because she had no idea what her legislation was doing. So they, get, they, they basically get handed a PDF printout that either a lobbyist provided them from a giant telecom company or some proxy organization that's funded by the telecom industry to look like it's independent and objective. And they don't actually know what they're supporting. Like uh, I've seen that you have as well consistently. Mm -hmm. They don't know what they're even supporting which is another layer of frustration in this whole thing. So this this brings me to Travis, who one of the things I, I love talking to you about, Travis, is how these, these government programs work, because I think it is surprising for people how someone who's built a network as successfully as you can feel so alienated and, and confused about how government works. <laughs> um, well, no, they work real well. They tax very well they they will <laughs> give you a traffic ticket very well so i mean i don't know I, I always listen to your podcasts and i and I'm, I'm always interested in this whole municipal approach and then what always dawns on me or i think about is well what about other private companies in those communities because as many successful muni muni programs as you can call upon i could call upon just as many successful private wisps and private fiber freighters in these cities but I'm wondering if we set the bar so low on our bandwidth requirements, now the cellular providers, the cable providers, even while well, DSL is going away, they can they can meet the they can meet the need. I always think about the electrification of America. What if we said rural America gets 32 volts, but the rest of us in the city get 120 volts? You know, it would it would have created a chaos, a chaotic scenario where in my world, I would be like, I would advocate gigabit up, gigabit down. 
that's what we're going to do. And if we use tax dollars, we should build an infrastructure that gets us there. If it can't get us there, it will build an infrastructure that's at least profitable enough that the people that are running it can then have enough uh, debt facility or, you know, raise equity, however they want to do it to build out, you know, a correct network, as I would view it long term. If that's the municipality, fine. The problem I have with the municipalities is they're so hard to work with. Have you ever tried to actually work with one of them? You know, I would say the only one that's been easy, St. Louis Park, Minnesota. And Clint, I'll give you two thumbs up. But as far as practical, <laughs> the practicality of, of dealing with it, I would rather build my own network than try to understand the quagmire of government. Right. Well, you and I, you and I have talked about this, and I'm I am deeply sympathetic in understanding a number of the challenges that you faced in that. Um, and I think that there are um, um, different levels of government in, you know, there's different approaches and they're, they're better at some things than others. Um, what I'm, what I'm curious about to some extent is actually um, Travis, you, you were a D DSL reseller before you started offering building your own networks, weren't you? Yeah. Well, originally when we had the most competition, we were dial up providers. So there was a hundred and, let's just say 150 dial-up providers in the Twin Cities back in 1995. There's one of them left today, that's us. In the, in the intro, in the middle, we got on with the low band DSL offering from CenturyLink. Oh, that was a nightmare. Um, and we and offered So that's my that. question. That's my yeah. question then exactly. Like, so if your choice is between working with government to some extent with all of its flaws or working with CenturyLink or Quest at the time and their DSL experience, yeah. like, is, is this just like the worst decision I'm posing you with? Or do you feel like one's better than the other? No, I'd take CenturyLink because they have a really? network. Yeah, because I could turn customers well, okay, on Okay, but today. that's not that question. The question is more like one of just like, who's like more incompetent and hard to deal with? Ooh. Well, now hold on. It took me six months to get my driver's license this time around with the government. So I, I'm a little jaded on that front. I, I toss up, I guess, you know, it's, it's, you ask me all the time, how do we get so many customers? Just don't be difficult. And the incumbents and, you know, I guess Minneapolis isn't bad to deal with because we only have to deal with them for a little bit, the permit, but as, as far as utilizing their infrastructure, we use none of it, you know, it, it, it's of anything that they've had. Now, obviously mm -hmm. we use the right away and that type of stuff, but we're not, we're, we're overbuilding the whole network in a major NFL city. Now, if I had the luxury of being in a small town where some of my friends are, they even have it easier than we do because small town works a lot different. All right. Cats, the mayor, Carl's in charge of, you know, the, the right away. We just all sit down you know, you're in charge of sewer, Chris, we'll disqualify you, you know, and, and we, and we just all sit down and we figure out what we want to do because we're all neighbors. We probably went to school together. You know, we know each other in the common good, but the bigger the city gets, the more challenging it gets. And the, honestly, the only time I hear from politicians, God, I hope this doesn't get viewed very much is about a month before they're due for, to be reelected. I hear from everybody. Down right. to city we go. Why? You know, oh my right. God, what's going on? You know, so, the digital divide. But then after they get reelected, hey, I got a few years. I don't have to deal with them. 
So I want to, this is something, Travis, I, I think you'll be back on and we can talk about some of these issues. I just want to say that I, um, I don't want to, my friends who work in government, I don't want to categorically accept that local governments are that hard to deal with, but I will absolutely grant you that the larger the local government, the less I want to deal with it myself. I, so, and again, I have a very small view on what I deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just, but it's, it's the reality of, cause you have to ask yourself just why aren't so many people becoming municipal providers? I would ask you the same thing. Those 150 dial up providers we had in 1995, why aren't they building networks in towns today? Yeah. Well, they, let me ask, let me ask you, yeah. um, let me ask Kat that question. Um, not, not about the, the providers that were dr- driven out of business by a combination of, of fierce monopoly lobbying and bad government decisions from the Clinton and Bush administrations, but the, um, the earlier question of, of why are local governments doing this? Why are local governments building their own infrastructure? Yeah, but also like, why is it necessary? Like, why, why aren't the other companies that Travis loves stepping up? Sure, I think, you know, my big picture answer to that is ultimately, you know, a provider's decision to build or upgrade in any market is, you know, the result of a a calculation of a lot of different factors. And if I am a local official and those factors aren't, you know, adding up in a way that's going to incentivize that build, um, you know, the chips that are on my side of the table, you know, the cards that I hold are things like access to infrastructure um, and other, um, you know, other capital that can hopefully tip those scales. Um, and, you know, uh, to your point, Travis, I think it's important to consider if uh, your own processes and policies can, you know, then tip the scales again in the other way. And I think that's an important part of the calculation of thinking about how to make yourself a good partner. Um, But I think the best case scenario is that you invest as a community in those assets that can hopefully incentivize, um, you know, a build out that might not otherwise make sense for a partner. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's um, something that uh, I think Blair Levin talks about is like, let's change the equation because it's, it's not working out. But, but I want to, I just want to throw the same question to you, Carl, in, in a slightly different way, which is how a reporter put it to me today, which is like, why is this a problem? Like in Chicago, like literally, why aren't there, why are the people that aren't connected? Um, how do you answer that? You know, I'm, I'm biased in this because I spend so much time writing about the giant monopolies, but I legitimately believe that in, in most of these instances, it's the giant monopolies that have erected all kinds of regulatory headaches, burdens, costs. I mean, they're literally, we literally let monopolies write state and federal telecom law. And I'm not sure what we expect the outcome of that situation to be when Comcast's primary interest is in protecting its geographical monopoly and AT&T's interest and Verizon's interest. These guys are literally tethered to our intelligence apparatus. They're too big deal. We have government <laughs> that refuses to hold them accountable for pretty much anything ever. I mean, once in a while, they get a little wrist slap seven months after they've done something wrong and the fine that that's like you know one percent yeah. of what money they made off of whatever they were doing and government yeah, watch mississippi that. right now right no that mississippi thing exactly at&t consistently getting all these subsidies and then you know spending it on whatever or nothing at all and who's going to hold them accountable nobody so i mean they're very powerful companies in a lot of these areas they really dominate the scene and when you've got government working against you uh in fealty to a deep pocket monopoly you're you're already <laughs> 
you're already climbing uphill, you know, I think, and I think these local areas, and I think COVID is going to amplify the urgency here with, with everyone learning and working and worshiping and, and playing and socializing at home. I think the, the, the dynamic here over the next two, three years is going to change pretty sharply if we're in this for a while and we're looking at a slow economic recovery. Which looks like I hope so. I just, you and I went back and forth on this and I, and I think Kat, you touched on it earlier. I can't get over how little broadband is playing in this election. Uh, now, I think a part of that is because Donald Trump is the election. I mean, I think people in city council in small towns are running against or for Donald Trump effectively. And so it's kind of drowned out everything else. But I thought broadband would be a much bigger issue. And not only that, I thought states would have done something by now. California didn't do anything on broadband. <laughs> like, I'm, 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 you know, I just, I'm kind of gobsmacked by that. I was just writing about this same, this exact subject last week, and I started looking in. I was going to write, I was going to write something about how COVID changed the equation, and politicians are taking this more seriously, and it's not just empty lip service. And then I found like, I think like four races where people had made broadband even a, a meaningfully decent sized part of their platform. Just it's still just you like uh, like Travis said, it's empty lip service in election season, right before election, and then there's so many other problems in this country, it just disappears completely, and nobody. You know, we get back to complaining about why Comcast is $100 a month for capped service that cuts out twice a day. You know, just a cycle we're trapped in. And I'm really hopeful COVID, I mean, of all that we get anything positive out of COVID, uh, it would be nice to see it light a little fire under this problem and change yeah. the dynamic that we've been stuck in for the last 15 years or so. So let's move on to the last topic. Sorry, Kat, you look like you're going to jump in. Yeah, I, I would love to. I think... Um... Just in regards to how you know broadband has or hasn't been a focus in this election cycle, I think um, what's difficult about that is, you know, to us there are so many differences between the two platforms when it comes to broadband. But I think that's really difficult to convey. Um, I think a lot of those differences are in the nuance um, at the level of conversation that would happen at a debate or in the mainstream media. Let um, me challenge you on that though, Kat. So, sure. I mean, it's different everywhere, but let me know how you respond to this, right? So in Minnesota, literally the people calling for broadband, the broadband program to get more money are Democrats. And the person, particularly when Republicans were in control of the house in the previous cycle, who stopped that. And they stopped it because I think in 2017, Chairman Pat Raffalo, who represents my parents, oddly enough, um, said that we didn't need to do this because in the next year, a wireless solution was going to solve all of this for rural, rural Minnesota, and we didn't need to put any money into it. Um, the, the, um, the head of the Senate, the Senate majority leader at the time, I think it was, uh, but it could have been in the House, it doesn't really matter for the perspective of the people we're talking about. He literally said, satellite is good enough for my grandma. Um, you know. And, and yet people, the same people who are putting broadband as a high, they're the ones that are sending these Republicans into St. Paul. And so I, I don't know if it is as, is as small a difference as you're suggesting. I feel like people just aren't paying attention. And, and maybe that's the case. I don't want to, um, you know, give voters, you know, not the credit that they deserve, but I think at the really macro level, you know, especially, you know, if we're talking about the two presidential candidates, I'm trying to imagine, um, you know, Joe Biden at a debate calling for more money for rural broadband infrastructure. And, you know, in the 15 seconds of airtime that gets, you know, Donald Trump says, how about the hundreds of millions of dollars I've put into reconnect? And 
we're done. Um, you know, if, if that's the, if that's the medium that we're talking about. Um, no, it's a very good point. Yeah. And I think that there are some cases, um, in which, you know, the, the actions of politicians at the state level are clear and it has been made clear to constituents that, um, you know, broadband's not a priority, but I also think in a lot of cases, um, it's just true that often broadband at the high level is bipartisan. And so it's really difficult to dig into politicians for failing to make that a priority, I think. And if anyone has an idea of how we can change that conversation, um, I'd certainly love to hear it. That's just my read. I'm surprised they don't, given that most of these incumbents have some of the worst customer satisfaction ratings of any industry in America, which if you think about is, is, is really incredible. You think about banking airlines, I mean, they're literally rated the worst. You would think a politician could at least throw out the occasional comment in that regard. Are you tired of paying Comcast? Or how much? Everybody's experience with Comcast being on hold is, is uniformly terrible. So you think they could, there could at least be some messaging there to, to hit on the customer service aspect, but they don't even try that a lot of times. So it's a very strange realm. I, but we also have so many problems in this country at this moment that I can understand how broadband can kind of get tossed to the side, even though it is effectively now going to be a life and death sort of issue for some people. That's right. So um, you actually, Travis, brought up the uh, the XDSL service, the original DSL service that allowed the wholesalers, uh, that the, the network owner was required to wholesale so that ISPs like you, 7,500 ISPs back in the day across the country could use. Uh, AT&T is phasing that out. And um, it's a bigger issue in rural America where um, tens of thousands of households have no other option, um, where people will be forced to upgrade where there's a better service available. And, um, and I think I really want to salute public knowledge, Harold Feld, uh, Jenna Leventoff, others who have made this issue uh, connected it to the IP transition in DC, which kind of gets to this issue of like, if the internet is so important, maybe we should have a process for transition rather than just telling people they're done with that service. <laughs> um, but I don't know where we want to start on this. I just felt like it was worth worth commenting on. So does anyone want to jump in to talk about this? The beginning of what will be uh, known as I think the, the DSL kill off as Verizon will follow suit shortly. You know, my, my problem with all of this is that AT&T has received so many countless billions of dollars to upgrade that network. Like we've literally paid them several times over to accomplish this. I think that that tax cut gave them an estimated $42 billion over three years alone. And the repeal of net neutrality, the repeal of privacy regulations, and this is just federal. We're not even touching on state. We're talking billions upon billions of dollars. Yeah, that's not even E-rate. Yeah, E-rate goes still further. Yeah. Both of those mergers, DirecTV and Time Warner, were predicated on the idea that, oh, part of this is we'll push fiber to more people. And I think, what was it, 28% of AT&T's footprint has fiber at this point. Well, not even that. though. Let's be clear about this. AT&T is one of these companies that, um, like CenturyLink, Travis, I think you've done this work. Um, you know, um, AT&T is even worse in terms of like connecting this building and that building. And then everything in the census block is viewed as being connected, but they're not. Um, so, you know, like that 28% is premised on the total population of people that live in census blocks where the fiber is available. And so I would guess we're probably actually looking at 20% or so of, because so many people are not, are in census blocks where they themselves cannot get service, but others can. So I think it's even worse than, than you're stating. 
Yeah, definitely. I think in rural areas, uh, the, that one report, the NDIA's report on AT&T's fiber penetration was like 6% in rural areas. And yeah, yeah. As, as, as you know, every time we trot out these statistics, they're FCC-based data points, which are notoriously not particularly reliable and usually about three years old by the time you get around to talking about them. Yeah, but I just, I feel like AT&T will like, like run fiber down a street in Charlotte, North Carolina, and like connect a business in like an 18 unit apartment building. And yeah. that's it, <laughs> you know? Right, right. And they're not going to in New York and they, they got that special deal with the mayor to, to wires at all the boroughs, right? And then when people finally got in there, they'd see that, oh yeah, fiber got to the corner, but then this whole stretch of this entire neighborhood uh, just left, you know, on aging DSL if that, probably a cable monopoly, same thing, yeah. Yeah. So Travis, how do you react to this when you look at those, those stories? Is, is it just a matter of being like, whatever, I don't care about DSL. I moved on in my life. Well, I mean, I, I look at it from the usability from the user and I mean, I guess if you had nothing else and all you had was DSL, it, um, it it's, it's probably, you know, you're only, it, it's going to be a terrible situation, but I think it was interesting that we gave so much money to AT&T under the premise of upgrading DSL when it was a dead end technology. And I think on a more broad topic, that's my biggest worry. You know, I hear these humongous numbers thrown out of our taxpayer dollars to these companies that just seem to go into this bottomless pit. It would, it, that's why I think the metrics should be, and I'm kind of drunk on fiber, so I apologize, is it should be fiber only is where we should be spending our money with the idea that it's gigabit. Because imagine if we could claw back all this cash that people poured into these DSL networks. And I mean, I, honestly, I don't even blame AT&T. I mean, it's terrible being a DSL operator. The user experience is terrible. The customer service, it just gets overloaded. There's nothing you can do to help the customer and fix it. So, I mean, I, I get why they got out of it. I, it took us 10 years to unwind all of our DSL. And we finally, two months ago, shut off our last building. And it's been, it's been amazing ever since. So, anyways, where I go with it, it might actually be a good thing. I'll, I'll play devil's advocate. Let's get rid of all this old stuff and stop sitting on it so that we can maybe pour some of this new cash that seems to come out every year into something that has some legs. Can I ask you to respond to that in a second, but Travis, let's just quickly note a, a bona fide. Um, you don't just say that you're drunk on fiber without having examined the alternatives. Um, you well, hold have on. worked on hold some on. wireless. I told you 9G was going to be the greatest thing ever. <laughs> so as soon as 9G gets here, well, and then, I mean, sorry, not to babble on, but just look at what happens on TV every single day. All this misinformation that gets disseminated that wireless is going to be the greatest thing in the world and solve all the problems. And then every other article on CNN is Elon Musk launching more satellites. Then this is going to be the solve all of our problems. Sorry, if we don't get fiber out to these people and get fiber deep into every community, we're going to be talking about this when we're 100 years old. This is going to be this is going to be the age as old as time. Right. The tale as old as time. And then sorry. What I, what I just wanted to make sure we covered is that for people who are listening, they understand you run a ton of wireless products, too. So you're not just yeah, running. It's terrible. Gasoline. Yeah. No, wireless is terrible. <laughs> wireless sucks. Copper sucks. Fiber wins. If you've, if you've ever been on a fiber internet connection, you will never want to go back. So, all right, I'll leave it at that. We can talk policy and politicians and where all the money goes, but just please stop pouring it into all this age technology that is never going to solve the problem.
Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned this next run here is just going to be throwing subsidies at Elon Musk and throwing subsidies at the 5G networks. And, la, yeah. la, 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 la. I am convinced. Oh. I am convinced this is money is going to electric cooperatives to build fiber. It's going to be going to some WISPs, some of whom I think will be good, some of whom I think it'll be wasted money. Uh, I am firmly in the camp that... Um, that I I'm, I'm totally Pollyanna on the Pollyannish on this. The FCC will have gotten it right. And most of the money will go to good networks from operators. I'm excited about, and only a fraction of it will go to charter. And, um, and we can in January, we'll know when it's all wrapped up. I want to believe you. I'll just say, <laughs> I, I very much want to believe that's true. Kat, what say you? Um, I I'll dovetail on a couple of those points. You know, I don't, disagree with Travis that I'm not sorry to see DSL go um, that you know that makes sense to me I think um, it's a policy failure that we as a country have put as much money into these networks as Carl mentioned um, and that you know both that that's where the money went and also that there wasn't follow-through or a plan in place for when those customers have inevitably been shut off or will be shut off. Um, and I just hope that we can use this as a cautionary tale for hopefully, um, you know, the large amount of investments we're about to make in new infrastructure um, and that we're not sitting here, the four of us on this podcast in 2040 or 2050 uh, lamenting about how we didn't use, um, you know, hopefully the money that comes out of next year um, for again, you know, the wrong kinds of upgrades. Yeah, I mean, we know that we're going to be lamenting in 2030 because um, some amount of the money will probably be going to a 25-3 service, which is just awful. Yeah, yeah to, I to mean, committing I, to that. I think that's a great point, and you know, to go back to an earlier point in this conversation about um, you know speeds of service when we're thinking about uh, you know where we're putting public money. I think that's, that's why that's so important to consider. Right. So any, uh, any hot topics, anything that have come up that we should hit on before we, we roll the credits, which by the way, there's no credits, but you know. <laughs> well, I, I, I would say for our next conversation, I, I would ask that the group considers what are the hurdles for these small private independent operators. A lot of them that live in these communities that have a vested interest in their communities, why are they struggling so much to build proper future-proof networks? When you read the paper, and Carl's point was interesting, what'd you say, $42 billion to AT&T or something? Over you know, three years, a, yeah. Over, geez, you know how much network you could build for that? Um, so I would just challenge the group to be like, you know, and I know Chris, you're a huge Muni guy, but, um, you know, what if we I've been trying to lose with, weight? Thanks, Travis. Yes. <laughs> how do we how do we empower all these small operators that are across the, co the country and um, help them get in business? Because there's a huge fundamental flaw in our financing model to get these small businesses up and going. Yeah. And I think that we could do more. We could do a lot of good for a lot of people if we overcame that. Let's end, let's end with that question. And I'll, I'll say it. people should write in. Tell us what you think. Broadband at muninetworks.org. I'll pass the information along for next week's panel or the 
panel that follows that won't necessarily be every week. Um, but, you know, one of my first answers is that people don't value this, the local provider, as much as they should. I don't think people understand how great it was to have 150 providers in the Twin Cities. I think people have this sense the internet is so complicated, you need 18 or T or Comcast to do it. And, and the opposite is true. Yeah. Well, I, I, I would say the cable companies are the problem. You know, we've set the we've set the bandwidth requirements so low that every cable operator in the nation can meet it. So if if you're going to come in as a new person in in the in the city and overbuild the cable company, you've got to leverage the fact of what Carl just said. Who the heck likes to call the cable company even deal with them? So if you're just a viable alternative that has a higher quality product at a little at a lower price, you're going to pick up 50% of the market literally in your first year. The problem is gaining access to capital. The cable company that you're competing with, they've got all the fancy lobbyists and all the fancy people that can go out to Washington and get it. You don't. You're just Chris Mitchell standing there in the middle of Mitchell, South Dakota, trying to get your network going. You don't know how to, you don't know how to fill out this like reams of forms and government documents. And then, I mean, you have no idea how to do it. So I think there's a huge missed opportunity here for yeah. thousands of operators across the country. Yeah, and it would be nice if some of this subsidy money goes towards getting, uh, building better frameworks that get all of those voices talking that aren't just dominated by an AT&T and Comcast lobbyists, that gets everybody at the table. What do you need to make this simpler? How would, how, yeah. would, how, how could we change the existing framework to make it simpler? And I know those conversations are going on, but there hasn't been a great special frame built to make that happen. Oh, it, it's scary. I mean, if you're a small operator with, you know, 400 customers out in the middle of nowhere and you fill out one form wrong what do you have the the government show up at your door and audit you for the next 10 years i mean you're, they're gonna kill you so you just don't even want to deal with it yeah. there's a part of me that wants to defend government just for the sake of i think there's a lot of um hyperbole about how bad government is but the other part of me is just like yeah but we all know that those small companies are the ones that get audited at&t never gets audited. no of course so. they don't they have <laughs> a whole audit of, yeah yeah, AT&T can fight it and the smaller operators can't, you know, yeah. they can't battle it. They can't so, so, Kat, let's get back to that. And so it's an iteration on a question that I'd asked before. And apparently these episodes are going to be an hour long because I can't hold anything to 45 minutes. Um, but <laughs> but what, is, what is the barrier? Why aren't you seeing, um, you know, smaller ISPs just marching up and down major urban streets connecting customers? Um, I think that's a complicated question. One thing that I'll offer that's been on my mind a lot lately and I think touches on, you know, the conversation we were just having is I think I'm really anxious for us to rethink how we structure federal and state funding programs for broadband, um, kind of like top to bottom. <laughs> like I want to rethink how we set eligibility requirements um, and eligibility for service areas and the way that the programs are administered and what the application process looks like. And I, I struggle with this a little bit because I think that there should be rigorous due diligence when we are deciding who to give public money to. Um, and, and I don't wanna suggest that we swing the doors open to anyone who can fill out a Google form to receive um, federal funding. But I do think that the process of- 
What's that? Sorry, I'm a jerk. It might be an improvement to do that. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and finish your thought, please. <laughs> sure. Um, but I do think that the way these programs are structured makes it really, really difficult for a lot of those smaller entities that could really benefit from the funding to even have the resources to be able to access that funding. Um, and I think in a way that perpetuates the system that we have today. Um, and I don't know what it would take for us to rethink that, but I really hope that we do. Um, I wanna expand eligibility and, and rethink the process. And I think some of that could, could look like, um, you know, more technical assistance programs that could be an antidote to, you know, instead of really simplifying the programs, I think we could simplify them a little and then maybe supplement with um, technical assistance, um, either a first round application to get you through some hurdles um, or other assistance filling out applications because the way they exist right now, I think it's really hard to successfully apply for and receive federal funding. And if we could level that playing field, I think we might be in a different situation. Yeah, no, I think I would, I would like to amplify. I think you said that earlier too. The um, encouraging local planning is really important. We need more local involvement in this. You know, one of the things I hear from folks is like, you know, we need more federal money. We need to change how we get it. And when I hear that from people on the ground, my first thought is always, okay, let's just assume there's a great program available now. Who's going to apply from your community to get it? You know, like, like who's ready to do that work to actually, like Travis said earlier, I mean, not to put a bow tie on everything, but um, um, the, not to tie a bow on it, I suppose would be a better way of saying that. But um, what Travis had said, like, you know, who's going to be the one to figure out the supply chains to make sure you get all the equipment you need? Um, you know, who, or who's going to be the one to interface with Travis to get him uh, to get on his list of projects in eight months? Uh, you know, if he's going to be a partner or something like that. That's what, that's the part that I really feel like is missing. Uh, to some extent, I think Democrats will be changing things around if they win in the way that they're forecast to right now. And they'll be putting more money, some of it into urban America for the first time. And I just worry that we don't have enough effort on the ground to be prepared to receive that and make good use of it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, I think a big chunk of money, like I said before, is going to go to the magic of 5G. I think that that will continue to be the hype point. Oh, man, you just ruined my day. <laughs> I just, the, the hype surrounding 5G, as Travis said, you know, you need fiber to power this stuff and it just doesn't exist in some of these neighborhoods, which is why, despite all that hype, these early 5G networks, if you look at the early results, are much slower, not only oh, yeah. compared to overseas 5G networks where they made middleband spectrum more available, but compared to 4G, in many cases, they're slower and it's very spotty. So, well, I, Travis, I, I, go ahead, Travis. Well, I, I just, and the other thing is, I don't think people appreciate the amount of content, the amount of capacity required, even to serve 50,000 people, the amount of capacity you need to serve that as far as internet connectivity goes. I mean, these, there's, there's just not enough spectrum available to really do it justice. So, you know, and I, before we get off that financing question, I mean, the thing to think about is a lot of these small operators, we're not talking in the scheme of things, a ton of money. If, 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 a, if a company had 200 grand to kick off their fiber network and they could leverage that with a senior lender, I mean, that's almost a million dollars. They can actually hook up. We're doing a project over in Wisconsin for 250 grand. We're hooking up 500 unserved homes. 
you know, again, it's not, it's, we don't need $42 billion, these small operators. I mean, these old, most, the, most of these people, if they had a million dollars, they would just, it would be, it would revolutionize the whole city. So anyway, it's just not that, not, this is a real, I think this is how we really get it done though, long-term. The, one of the things that Travis and I have been talking about lately to try and improve service is CBRS in cities, because then particularly for kids in schools, you give them a hockey puck, you don't have to send someone to their home to attach stuff to the side of the building. And one of the first questions I get when I talk to different people about this approach is, is that like 5G? Is that, are we going to have mm-hmm. people worried about radiation if we start putting this up because of the people who are concerned about 5G um, and health effects? And it's just, it's amazing to me that that's where we're going to get, end up having these discussions. And frankly, if money tries to go to 5G, maybe it'll be these, you know, anti-vaxxers that are like, I'm all about 5G now that will stop it from happening. Yeah. <laughs> they want fiber too, because they both, yeah, right well, I feel like that's a good place to leave it, having insulted some small portion of our, <laughs> our listening audience. <laughs> I just, um, you know, when I, I've traveled the world a bit and I've seen the, the, the ravages of diseases that have known cures in vaccines and it pisses me off to no end to, to be arguing about that. So it's something that's a bit emotional for me, but um, I really appreciate you all coming in here for episode zero because um, this is a, a really fun group and I really enjoyed kicking this off. And um, unless I get a ton of hate mail and perhaps even if I do, um, this to me seems <laughs> worth continuing. Sounds like a challenge. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And it's Thank nice you all. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. It's fun. Yeah, excellent. All right, well, take care, everyone. Have a have a great week, and uh, and we'll see you all again on another panel in the future.